You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This election year, mobilizing prayer is the focus of a group based in Colorado Springs. The Pray for America bus tour is in Philadelphia this week for the Democratic National Convention. It was in Cleveland last week for the GOP's gathering. The tour is organized by the National Day of Prayer Task Force. Its staff is made up of evangelical Christians, many of whom previously worked for Focus on the Family, but the task force says there is no affiliation. Spokesman and former pastor Dion Elmore says this is an apolitical tour to encourage people to pray for government leaders, which he says the Bible implores people to do in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I encourage you to make petitions prayers, intercessions, and prayers of thanks for all people, for rulers, and everyone who has authority over us, pray for these people so that we can have a quiet and peaceful life, always lived in a godly and reverent way. This is good and pleases God. Dion says the goal is to get people to pray together. So I asked if a diehard Clinton supporter and a diehard Trump voter came together this election year, what would they both pray for? <laughs> well, I'm sure there are always selfish motivations that come into everybody's prayer. But aside from that, what we see, I'm just telling you about what we see. We're here in Philadelphia, and we have believers who are both from a Democratic and both from a Republican background. And their issue is not we're, not, we're not standing for a candidate. This is not about politics. It's about the process of praying godly leaders, people who will rule, and reign in righteousness, and they are in accord with the golden rule. People try to turn all of this into political focus, and it's really not. It's about whoever is there, regardless of whether you love them or whether you don't, you need to pray for them because they're an authority. So I want to say that in 1952, both houses of Congress, which were at the time under Democratic control, directed then President Harry Truman, also a Democrat, to create a National Day of Prayer, which occurred, and that this prayer happened in churches, in homes, in hearts, that God may grant us wisdom to know the course which we should follow. And the National Day of Prayer now lands on the first Thursday of May. You say this bus tour is an expansion of that. How has the tour worked? Do Do you just hold prayer sessions outside of the conventions or what? The first day that we were in Cleveland, we rallied with about 100 churches, various denominations. Uh, They were having a 24-hour prayer time there. And what they were praying for was they were praying for the peace in the city. Because there were a lot of reports of people threatening demonstrations and, you know, civil unrest, things that would happen. We went and joined them the first evening that we were there and met with some of their people, prayed with them. They had some elected leaders from local government that were there because this is not just about the national. We're we're praying for local, state, and national government. And we, the next day, got on the bus that we're driving, which has a big wrap that says, Pray for America on it. And we stopped at points, and we prayed. We prayed for the police officers that were guarding. There were police officers from all over the nation. So we we interacted with some of them and asked how we could pray for them. The thing that they kept asking for was, please pray that peace would reign. And we did get to pray with some of the delegations. And what about some of the prayers in Philadelphia? We did the same thing. There are groups here, churches that are meeting together and established prayers. We uh, were out on Independence Mall, and we were able, because of people walking around, to interact with several of the delegates and ask them, how can we pray for them? 
And the thing that they kept asking us to pray for is, please pray for peace. We want, we want peace and we also want unity. How do you think prayer works? That is to say, if you pray for peace, if you pray for a specific outcome, and you, you know, I think that there are people who have found themselves praying for things or prayed for money or prayed for relationships. How do you think it works? So if you pray for peace, what are the mechanisms that occur after that that might lead to peace or might not? Uh, when you said mechanisms, I, I just I was thinking about uh, this, uh, God is not a coin-operated machine, so you can't mechanize the process. You can't just put a you know a prayer in and hope that the result will be what you've you know requested to come out. From a Christian perspective, we pray for the temporary things, the temporal things, often. But quite honestly, God is a is an eternal God, and what He promises in His Word is eternal life. And so what I always tell people is focus your prayers on the eternal, not on the temporary. Mm. So the idea that prayer might often come from a short-sighted perspective, and as you're saying it, God has the long view. There is a scripture in Isaiah 55. It says, God says to Isaiah, he said, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. So sometimes we see things from our small perspective versus a greater perspective, even though you pray uh, through a Judeo-Christian lens on this tour, is, is anyone welcome to participate, a Buddhist, a Muslim? You know, we make the distinction that we are coming from a Christian perspective on prayer. Of course, we'll invite people to come, and, you know, we will pray with anyone, uh, recognizing that the gods that we pray to <laughs> may not be the same gods. In the wake of the shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Many public officials offered their prayers to the victims and their families. Um, And there was real pushback against that from some, saying prayer isn't enough, that people need to take action. What do you think of this idea that prayer is perhaps not enough, and it might even be a way for someone to avoid taking a concrete step that could change the world? I agree with you 100% that people need to take a step beyond prayer. Prayer, in my opinion, this is just Dion speaking personally, prayer, in my opinion, is, is just the first step. Effective prayer, in my perspective, is prayer that is strategic, it's intentional, it's purposeful, and it's informed based upon knowing the people that you're praying for or knowing about what you're praying for. So being knowledgeable. To get to know the elected leaders, to get to know the government workers, to get to know the people serving in these different spheres of influence, ask them. Don't just pray, but go in and meet them. Introduce yourself. Hi, I live in your city. You're the mayor of my town. Your decisions make a difference in my life, and I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And I would love to know how to specifically pray. What do you say to people who think that the rapprochement between prayer and government is worrisome or erodes the separation between church and state. The separation issue that Thomas Jefferson talked about, which was Thomas Jefferson's perspective, was exactly that. We cannot have state-run religion in the United States of America. But the people in the United States of America are free to exercise their citizenship, 
to exercise their ability to interact with the government. That's not infringing. It was never meant to protect the government. It was meant to protect the people. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely. Dion Elmore, a former pastor, is spokesman for the National Day of Prayer Task Force. The Colorado Springs-based group organizes the annual Pray for America bus tour. It traveled to the Republican and Democratic national conventions this month. When we come back, the number of Coloradans with Alzheimer's disease is expected to soar in coming years. What caregivers need to know, but often don't. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver filmmaker Lori K. Allred remembers the day her mother couldn't remember her, part of the painful decline of dementia. She's made a film about it, which was picked up by Shorts TV, the short movie channel. Stories like hers will become more common. The number of Coloradans living with Alzheimer's is expected to grow by more than a third in the next decade. That's according to Amelia Schaefer from the state chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, who joined me with filmmaker Lori K. Allred. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Lori, this film is a fictionalized account that draws on your real-life experience. Uh, your character, Anya, returns home to visit her mother, Anya's sister, Sam, is taking care of their mom. I thought I heard a car pull up. Hi. I'm Katie, Sam's mother. It's Anya, Mom. Anya. What a pretty name. Let's go in the house, Mom. Is it time for Dick Clark? No, Mom. Lori, will you take us to the day that something very similar happened to you? Yes, um... I was home for my father's funeral, and we were all around a very large table. There's seven of us kids, and everyone was... I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. How long ago was this? Mm. Wow, it's ten years. Ten years. But everyone was seated, and... um, My mother was at the head of the table, and my sister was on one side of her, and I was on the other. And my sister said, Mom, should we start? And my mom said, Why don't we wait for Lori? And I was sitting right beside her. And I think that was the first time she didn't recognize me. So that's where that scene comes from. Um... I hadn't planned to write that or bring that up, but as part of the 48, you're doing everything very quickly. And So let me say that this was made, this short film, as part of a 48-hour film project. So you're given essentially two days to make a short film. Right. You do everything from draw your genre out of a hat, uh, and you are given a prop a name with an occupation and a line of dialogue that has to be used in it. And out of those bare bones, yeah. you, you crafted a story about, about, in many ways, your mother. Yes. It isn't exactly about my mother, but it, there are things that are similar. And so we wrote through the night. It was um, Rob Palmer and Brock Sherman and I wrote the script through the night. And uh, I don't even know if they know now that that is part of a personal story. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your mom. What was she like? Um, wow. 
Well, she had seven kids, so... (laughs) (laughs) She was busy. (laughs) She was very, very busy. And we grew up on a farm, so there was a lot of work to do. So I would say she had a full plate. And the film takes place, actually, on a farm. It does, on a ranch in Elizabeth, yeah, the Hanlon Farm. Well, we were interested in putting your story into context, Lori. And so Amelia from the Alzheimer's Association of Colorado, if someone with dementia forgets who you are, will it always be that way? Or does memory sort of go back and forth? Yeah, I think that's one of the things that makes it so tricky for families is that each day can be a little bit different. Even though we know this is a progressive disease, um, it doesn't happen in a, an, an exact pattern. So one day, someone might remember who you are. The next two days, they might not. So memory is very complicated. And with Alzheimer's, what tends to happen is they remember 40 years ago as opposed to four days ago. Right, because at the end of the clip we heard, she says, is it time for Dick Clark? Making reference to the, the old TV show host. Uh, so that, that's not uncommon either. No, that's not uncommon. And I think that's, you know, one of the things I really liked about this film is it showed how um, each sister dealt with the disease and how they approached it. And one of the things I would say they did really well is they sort of met mom where she was. What, as opposed to being angry or frustrated that she can't remember? Is that what you mean? Correct. At the very end, instead of saying, you're not going to a game, mom. That's not where you're going. They said, have fun. I can't wait to hear about it. They take their mom essentially to memory care is the final scene of the film. And mom thinks she's going maybe to prom or something like that. She thinks she's going to homecoming. Yeah, she's wearing her Letterman sweater and thinks that this is her homecoming. And I had heard a statement one time that I tried to remember when you get into that situation, and that is you have a choice to be right or to be kind. And so correcting someone isn't going to change anything. What good would it have done? Exactly. And that's really, I think, the struggle for a lot of families is getting beyond that point of the truth and our reality and today what's happening. The sisters in your film, Lori, make the decision to put their mother in memory care, essentially in assisted care that specializes in those with with dementia. How in the real world should adult kids with parents that may have Alzheimer's make that decision? Making that decision is actually the toughest decision caregivers make because you never know. If not now, when? I think the title is very poignant. Um, so it's the title of this film. It's the title of the film. And I think that it, um, it, it is very challenging because you do always wonder, is, this, is it really time? Is it not? Right. And what if she's better tomorrow? Exactly. As you've described, she could be. And just because she didn't remember me today, guess what? I made the decision and now she remembers me. Oh, my gosh, it was the wrong decision. And I think that's when you rely on your support system. It's when you rely on reaching out to people who've been there, been through it, and, and really talking it through. And if, if the family can come together and do that, it's wonderful. I, I would like to say that always happens, but we see that it doesn't always happen and it complicates everything. Well, I think in, in the film, If Not Now, we also have a social worker come in and we also explain that it has come to the point where she's a safety risk, not only to herself, but to her daughter who she lives with. And at that point... I think you you have to do something because their safety is number one. And if you try to ignore that, you know, it could be a very regretful situation. 
Yeah, I think it's a moral dilemma because what we try to recommend to people is when you learn you have Alzheimer's or dementia, sit down and make the plan for yourself because there will come a time Mm. when you can't make that plan and others will have to make it for you. Make your wishes known when you still can. Absolutely. Make your wishes known when you can. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking about a short film called If Not Now. It deals with dementia. The filmmaker is from Denver. That's Laurie K. Allred. And this film was picked up by Shorts TV. We're using it as an opportunity to talk about what it means to have a relative with Alzheimer's. Let's talk about the cost of care, because that's a huge part of this decision as well. 30% of respondents in one survey believe they personally have insurance for long-term care. And yet national stats show that actually only 3% of U.S. adults have long-term care insurance. So not only are people without insurance, they think they have it when they don't. That is one of the biggest misconceptions. People think, oh, Medicare will pay for it. And it's really um, shocking when they find out that, no, it's actually private pay. You're looking at hundred dollars to $150,000 a year if you're paying privately. And And that's specifically for memory care? That's specifically for memory care. There are lots of uh, options. There's memory care, residential, there's in-home memory care. So uh, you're looking at at least over 100,000 a year. And most people don't have that just sitting around. And um, I think that that misconception that Medicare will pay for it, or even that Medicaid will pay for it, is a huge misconception. And it's a huge blow and shock Um, And something that people don't want to talk about, the financial toll, money, planning ahead. Did their parents plan ahead or have they planned ahead? Many people are still paying into their own retirement. So where does that leave families? That's a really good question. It leaves them struggling. It adds to the stress of it. It can lead to a lot of challenges within the family, feeling like, you know, mom helped you out all these years and now you're not even here to help her out. It really does bring up a lot of the family struggles. And if families don't have the means, then they can um, use Medicaid to pay. But in many cases, their options are very limited. And, you know, this film took place on a ranch. And in Colorado, we have a lot of rural areas that don't have access to a lot of resources. So that adds to the complexity of situations. So do you recommend at the Alzheimer's Association long-term care insurance? We do. And at what age do you get that? You know, we can get it today, Ryan. Okay. So you're signing me up. Okay. You know, we, we can get it today. And I think that the biggest thing and where I would start would be legal and financial planning. I wouldn't start with long-term care insurance, but I think knowing about it as an option is important. And there are lots of resources to find that information for free. One of the dynamics in this film is the tension between the sisters, one who's taking care of their mother uh, with Alzheimer's and one who is afar and returns home. There's animosity there. Because distance is an issue, I think, Lori. Sure. And that part wasn't um, based on my relationship with my sister. Uh, I trusted because she was there that she was making the best decision and I never questioned her decisions. However, when we have shown our film at festivals, after the Q&A, we always get people coming up and telling us their story. And that is one of the things people say. They're like, that is me and my sister completely. And so it's a common theme. We were lucky enough not to argue, but I think that's probably more normal than Mm. not. And you've spoken to those tensions already, Amelia. I think part of what we haven't touched on is that sometimes the caregiver is the one who has Alzheimer's. 
That is to say, it might be a husband caring for a wife or a wife caring for a husband, and the situation gets just infinitely more complicated. That is absolutely right. You know, as people live longer and as their risks for getting Alzheimer's or dementia increase, we do see people where both have some form of dementia. That is a a real challenge on a family because typically one person is covering for the other. Um, They may be a very proud, you know, it's a very proud generation of individuals. So they don't put their family business out there and they're um, they're very secretive in some ways about what's really happening. Where does a treatment or cure for Alzheimer's stand today? So there are uh, several FDA-approved treatments for Alzheimer's. And if you look at the research on those, what we know is that they can sometimes change the symptoms. They can change the quality of life for a person, but they're by no means a cure, um, nor do they really change the course of the disease. So right now, what we know is that Alzheimer's is the only uh, cause of death in the top 10 that cannot be prevented slowed or cured. No drug can even slow its progression? That's correct. Now, the drugs right now treat the symptoms like some of the other drugs out there. Symptoms like what? Symptoms like um, the short-term memory loss, um, attention span, being able to think clearly, um, and and even some of the anxiety. Um, So that's really where the treatments come in there. It's less about changing the course of the disease or having someone live longer, and it's more about Um, helping someone think more clearly in the very early stages. Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Amelia Schaefer is vice president of programs at the Colorado chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Lori K. Allred is a Denver filmmaker whose film, If Not Now, was picked up by the cable channel Shorts TV. It's about dealing with dementia. Coming up, backers of a universal health care proposal in Colorado hope to tap into the energy of the burners. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Senator Bernie Sanders has played a key role at this week's Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. Here in Colorado, backers of a ballot measure for universal health care hope Sanders will also use his influence to make Colorado care a reality. Here is CPR's health reporter, John Daly. The Colorado Care Initiative would rock the healthcare world if it passes in November. It would create a new public tax-funded health system to cover all of the state's residents. At a recent forum in Grand Junction, opposing sides on the proposal faced off. One of the panelists, T.R. Reed, a proponent, made a bold prediction. I'll tell you how we're going to win this election. Reed is a longtime journalist and one of the architects of Colorado Care. He says backers have been making the pitch to Bernie Sanders' team Then once the dust has settled after the Democratic convention... He goes home to Burlington, Vermont. He doesn't have 8,000 people cheering for him every day. He needs something to do. So he comes to Colorado and campaigns for single payer, and we win. And, Reid says, Sanders creates another chapter in his political legacy, working to pass universal health care, what some people call single payer. It wouldn't be the first time the Vermont senator made the case for one of his key health care positions in Colorado. It got thousands of supporters cheering at an event in February. And Sanders continued to beat that drum in a cable TV appearance with Rachel Maddow. He explained that Canada started its universal health system with approval from lawmakers one province at a time. So you're asking me, do I think if a major state, whether it's Colorado or California or whatever, goes forward and it works well, other states say, hey, you know, I got a brother over there in Colorado who's getting the health care, great health care, and, and it's less expensive than the current system. Yeah, I think that is one possibility, absolutely. 
Colorado Care is a game changer with an estimated $38 billion a year price tag. It would create a first-in-the-nation system to replace the Affordable Care Act. A tax on workers and businesses would pay for it, eliminating the need for insurance premiums and deductibles. Backers say it'll save the state and individuals a lot of money. The whole concept of Amendment 69, as it's called, appeals to Andrew Kleiman. I think we're just at such a tipping point. He's a 35-year-old Sanders supporter from Grand Junction. A few years ago, when he was uninsured, he struggled to get the care he needed during a serious illness. I think that just the momentum of Bernie's campaign carried over into something like this would be a perfect fit and pretty necessary, I think. Kleiman says if Sanders actively backed the proposal in Colorado, it would help motivate millennials like him to vote. But a coalition of opponents, including conservatives, insurance, and business groups, have come out against the initiative, which is expected to draw big money from both sides. I don't think the economics of it work out. That's Nina Anderson, who owns a small staffing firm in Grand Junction. She says the proposal would be too expensive for small businesses and employees. Colorado has been on the cutting edge of some big policy changes, like legalizing recreational pot. Anderson says she's not ready for the state to take the lead on a huge government-run health care system. That is the scary part, I think, about being in Colorado and being on the forefront of anything that is attempting to move to socialized care is that you do get everybody with outside interests coming in and playing in your sandbox. It's not just business owners who worry about the downsides of this proposal. Some high-profile Democrats aren't on board, including the current Democratic governor, John Hickenlooper. Cody Belsley is a former aide to former Democratic Governor Bill Ritter. She opposes the proposal and says she's not sure what difference Sanders would make if he did come. It's such a strange political year. I think it's really hard to know what's going to impact Colorado voters or the outcome of Amendment 69. Colorado voters haven't passed a general tax increase in years. Obamacare cut the state's uninsured rate in half, but many people struggle with high premiums and deductibles. Belsley is working for the opposition group Coloradans for Coloradans. She urges voters to look at the details of the proposal. And I think when folks look at that, they come to understand that this is just too risky of a proposal. Sanders' presence in Colorado could motivate voters on both sides. That's according to Seth Maskett. He's a political science professor at the University of Denver who's been following this year's political contests closely. I mean, that's kind of the mixed message of initiatives. They can really draw it both sides, depending on how, how passionate people are on the subject. The Sanders team did not respond to several requests for comment. If Senator Sanders is willing to campaign for Colorado Care, that would raise the profile of a state initiative, giving the swing state of Colorado a national spotlight once more. I'm John Daly, CPR News. All right, we have an update. After the first airing of that report, the Sanders campaign did reach out to CPR News. It says the topic interests the senator, quote, very much. But no trip to Colorado has been scheduled. To big political news now that didn't happen. After a lot of speculation, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper was not chosen as Hillary Clinton's running mate. He did, though, land a primetime speaking spot at the Democratic National Convention tonight. To lift the veil a little, our newsroom had prepared for the possibility that Clinton would choose Hickenlooper by interviewing his former chief of staff, Roxanne White, and former Speaker of the Colorado House, Republican Frank McNulty. Hickenlooper, a former geologist and beer brewer, has been called the accidental governor. I asked White what his political ambitions really are. I think he is both the accidental politician and very ambitious. 
He was a very, very successful business person. He was a very successful civic leader. And then he got challenged to step forward in the political arena. But I don't think those are the clothes that he will ever naturally wear. Frank McNulty went a step further. On the phone with us, he says the governor absolutely has national political ambitions. Well, I think he aspires to be president. I'm not sure that the the timing quite works out for that, but he's still a young guy. He's only 64. Now that he's not a vice presidential nominee, Hickenlooper might still land a cabinet position if Hillary Clinton wins in November, although he's told us in the past he's probably not that interested. In any case, he'll be on the big stage tonight in Philadelphia. The governor's speaking style is more folksy than polished, something I talked to him about recently. He told me he often asks his friends how he's doing. I go back and I say, well, you know, I've been doing this for like 10 years. Uh, Don't you think I've gotten better as a public speaker? And they kind of look awkward and they say, well, you're authentic. (laughs) Again, his former chief of staff, Roxanne White. So I oftentimes, as chief of staff, got asked, didn't you write a speech? Didn't you make certain a speech went with him? And I would say, look... There was a speech, and I actually happened to think that the speech that the staff wrote was pretty darn good. But on the way there, as he was looking at the comments, they weren't true and authentic to him. And, you know, we would practice the state of the state speech, and we would practice things. But at the end of the day, I never wanted him to be so scripted that we didn't know who he authentically is or was. Governor John Hickenlooper speaks tonight at the Democratic National Convention. Still to come, a Pueblo band whose music transports you to another time. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Some parents in Douglas County are still upset about what they describe as an inappropriate meeting between two school board members and a 15-year-old student. Her parents didn't know about the meeting. In fact, in most Colorado school districts, parental permission is not required when officials meet privately with students. Here's CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine. The July meeting of the Douglas County School Board made it clear that the Grace Davis case is still on many people's minds. This is my nightmare. Tim Krug told the board the action set a dangerous precedent. That you have the authority to then take that child into a room alone without an advocate for the child in the room, without parents' permission. That's what happened to Grace Davis. Four months ago, two board members asked to meet with her privately about a protest she was planning. Davis recorded the meeting on her phone. She says the meeting left her feeling bullied and intimidated. An investigation showed no violation of district policies. In fact, most school board codes of conduct don't explicitly say who can talk to kids and when, nor do they protect students from intimidation by adults. That's because many board members say they can't imagine what happened in Dugho happening in their district. We would not initiate a meeting with a student. That's Colorado Springs School District 11 board member Elaine Naleski. She says it's an important part of her job to meet with parents, teachers, and students. But in the absence of a district policy, Naleski tries to make sure two board members are always present. Naleski and others interviewed find the Doug Coe situation unusual and don't see the need for specific policies. Kevin Wellner heads up the National Education Policy Center at CU Boulder. We trust that the school officials, or in this case, the school board members, would act responsibly. 
That doesn't always happen. I think in this case, they stepped over the line. But I think that it's reasonable to expect that in the usual case, there will be responsible behavior by the people in the school district. Most ethics policies warn board members against things like making money from their position on the board. Boulder and Denver's ethics codes don't specifically address interactions with students. Here's DPS's Gregory Hatcher. Due to the fact that board and student interactions occur within the regular course of board members fulfilling their usual and regular duties, there's not necessarily a parent notification or permission request. And he says those meetings aren't one-on-one. Meantime, Jeffco's bullying and intimidation policies apply to everyone, including board members. Parents may be surprised to learn that they don't need to be notified about meetings with students, except when law enforcement is involved. Again, Kevin Wellner. For the most part, the idea is that once a child goes into a school, the school acts, the phrase used is, in loco parentis, or in place of the parents. And so there's no reason for the parents themselves to also be there for most of those interactions. We trust the schools to to play a responsible role as if they were playing a parental role. Districts do vary when it comes to spelling out how school personnel must interact with students. Overall, Aurora and Denver schools expect adults to be respectful at school. In Cherry Creek schools next door, spokeswoman Tustin Amol says their policy prevents students or staff members from harassing, intimidating, or hazing students. Even if there's not a specific policy for adults that say no bullying, it's covered through a broad variety of other policies. Greeley-Evans School District 6 has one of the clearest policies defining conduct between students and staff. In one area, it spells out that employees shouldn't intimidate or use insults or sarcasm against students as a method of forcing compliance. Colorado Springs District 11 doesn't have a written policy on adult conduct with students, but it does acknowledge anyone can bully. In fact, it has a bully button right on its main webpage where users can report inappropriate behavior by anyone. Some education observers say spelling out a specific policy may not be the way to go. CU Boulder education professor Terry Wilson. Rather than specific policies designed to legislate behavior that may happen only once, We really need to do a better job in thinking through the ethical complexity of work and helping school leaders and school practitioners have the tools to be able to have those conversations and to critically reflect on their own practice. So while some in Douglas County are calling for rules for how board members can interact with students, Wilson and others worry more rules might constrain healthy interactions between students and the adults around them. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Pueblo band The Haunted Windchimes may have been born in the wrong decade. Their sound transports you to another time. Your memories that leading me to my lament. Put them in my pocket with some change and let them fight for it. My lapels and coffee and lipstick. Been chasing lace and sweet little days and we're riding on the good days of God. In this track, Dead and Gone, there are elements of Americana and folk and even some country and blues. It's off of the band's latest album, Rattle Your Bones. The Haunted Wind Chimes perform tonight at Larimer Lounge in Denver, and I'm joined by two of the four bandmates 
singer and guitarist Nea Lujan and his sister Chela Lujan, who sings and plays banjo. Welcome to you both. (laughs) Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Words like nostalgic and old-timey have been used to describe your music. Do you think your music is a throwback to a different time? Uh, I definitely feel like we draw from a lot of old music. It's some of our, our favorite stuff for sure, but um, we, uh, we like to kind of put our own little unique twist on it as well. Where do you think that comes from, that interest in a sound that to others may sound like a different time? Um, I think a lot of it comes from our upbringing and um, our parents always kind of having the radio on and, you know, whether it be Neil Young or Bob Dylan or the Beatles, um, it's nostalgic to us as well, that sound. And it's just kind of embedded in the DNA somewhere. Hmm. I think it comes from like the simplicity and drawing like from the hardships too of what was once ago, once upon a time and what is still now. I think that's appealing to us too. It's just, it feels simple. Absolutely. You two grew up on a Navajo reservation in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Correct. And you say that you processed that experience retroactively. What do you mean by that? Uh, to me, well, we um, I was three when we moved to Ganado, Arizona on the Navajo Nation. And I was going on 14 when we left. So I was real young. And I, I don't like I, I took on the... Um, growing up there and the dirt and the sage and not wearing shoes and not having to come home until, you know, dusk and the real innocence of it as a child. And then when I grew up as an adult, seeing it for what it was then and what it is now. Um, what is it now? Well, it's it's a lot of things now. I mean, I, sometimes we have a ten- tendency to glorify that red roadway, like the, you know, cultural appropriation and whatnot when in reality, you know, the Native Americans, um, American Indians are the the minority of the minority. <laughs> no one's really talking about the hardships that are going on over there. But there's also this beauty too. There's a struggle and there's a beauty and a appreciation for the land and the respect and the culture. And that that's really deep in my heart. And I'm just wanting to learn more about it as an adult as opposed to not knowing what I was doing as a kid. <laughs> Yeah, because your father was very involved in Navajo culture and mm-hmm. traditions. How often did he take you two along when he attended ceremonies? Any time we'd go, really. Okay. I mean, he was he was pretty open about our participation, you know, so it was really our choice. He didn't force it on us either, but if if we wanted to be included in, say, a sweat lodge or, or um, doing any type of ceremonial thing, he'd always have an open invitation. Mm-hmm. Do you draw on that in your music? Um, I wouldn't say in the liter in the literal sense do we draw on it, but it's definitely a part of our upbringing and and um, it, in a kind of like Chayla was mentioning, like the culture and, and kind of a, a spiritual way of of having different perspective, of having a different way of seeing things. Mm-hmm. Chayla, how would you answer? I would agree with that. It's just it's uh, I don't I don't yeah <laughs> I would agree with him. <laughs> well, why don't we hear some more music, shall we? Yeah. Absolutely. So this is more from your album Rattle Your Bones, River Song. Lay Down My Burden. I understand that you wrote this track, Chayla. I did. What's the story behind it? 
Um, it's so gospely. I it love is it. very gospely. Yeah, we we were in Indiana at the time, and a good friend of ours, Jason Payton, had uh, shown us Woody Guthrie's "Sewing on a Mountain," and we just I just had him sing it over and over and over again, and it, it had that same feeling of this call and response gospel, end of the world, but also. Um, it's going to be okay. And, and <laughs> <laughs> How do those two things I know. Go? Well, the end of the world and like, I don't know. Um, anyway, the, the song is, is very much about the end of something and the beginning of something else. Um, it's a reverse song. It's, it's gospel. It's a love song and it's, it's good. <laughs> and it's lovely. Thank you. The harmony lovely as well. Mm-hmm. Are you, were you naturally good at harmony? I'm just curious. Inea kind of taught me how to harmonize. I didn't really know what it was. Yeah. The, I knew I liked to sing. The funny thing is um, harmony didn't really become apparent to me until I really got into punk rock music. Um, really? I was really into a band, No Effects, and it really clicked that um, this is two or maybe three people singing different parts. They weren't just doing a mirror of each other or octaving each other, and there was actually different parts. So our, our first experiences with harmony was me teaching Chayla all of El Jefe's parts from <laughs> No Effects. <laughs> this little 10-year-old. <laughs> How cool. A big, big brother in this case? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So all four band members are songwriters, mm-hmm. I understand. Correct. That sounds unwieldy. <laughs> I mean, it, it can be a time where we're all four big personalities, you know, but somehow uh, I think our our love for one of an, another really makes it all work. How do you work through disagreements? Uh, we're fights. getting better at that. Fist fights, <laughs> mostly. No, we're, we're just, you know, we... Um, we work, we work through our stuff whenever it kind of comes up and we have different methods and things like that. But for the most part, we, we get along great. And, and we, um, I think the, the way we kind of deal with the democracy of our group is whoever wrote a song, it's their song. They sing lead and we're mm. kind of their backup band. Mm. You know? well, so it's not only that uh, brother and sister are in the act, but your wife Yes. Desiree Garcia is also in the band. Yeah, her and I started the group 10 years ago. Yeah, the Haunted Wind Chimes. And so it makes me wonder about Mike Clark, who sings and plays guitar, mandolin, fiddle, if he winds up having to be a mediator as the one outside of the family. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes we all kind of take the role of being a mediator every once in a while. But he fits right in, you know. Just He's got a great sense of humor. And I think that uh, humor is a, a, a really good uh, neutralizer. Or, yeah. Deterrent for arguments. <laughs> cut, cut through the tension. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, another song off this album. It's a bit more upbeat, not so end of the world, I guess, Shayla, <laughs> is sun, sh- <laughs> sun Shining Bright. Good harmony. <laughs> and yeah, I read that you wrote this after returning from the Grateful Dead's Fare Thee Well celebration last year. Which That's right. commemorated yeah. 50 years of that band's music. What about that trip inspired you? 
Um, I'm a recent convert to the Grateful Dead, actually. I had huh. uh, many people, including Chayla and I's sister, try to turn me on to the dead. But I've always been one of those don't-tell-me-what-to-do type, <laughs> type of people. So it, it, I kind of had to discover it on my own. And then um, a, good, a good buddy of ours, Connor Borgel, uh, got, got a pair of tickets to Chicago. He says, you want to go to Chicago, check out this show? And I just said yes without really thinking about it. And I think what I was mostly inspired by was, was the crowd and just like all this love, um, for, for the band, but for one another and just like a real community and, and the music just so uplifting. It made me think, you know, as much as I love a sad song and as much as I feel like sad music is important, it feels like the purpose of music is to be bright and shiny and to lift people's spirits. Tell me about the band name, The Haunted Wind Chimes. <laughs> sure. Um, so when uh, I was courting my wife, uh, Desiree Garcia... Um, Again, found, who's in the band? Yes, I found her on MySpace via um, a local coffee shop's page, Wireworks Coffee House. And I thought she was kind of new to Pueblo, and I reached out to her. Hey, I'll show you around, sort of thing. You're dating... Uh, you said MySpace, right? MySpace. Yeah, you're dating yourself yeah. on that one. Vintage <laughs> social media. <laughs> But um, long story short, uh, we I found out she was from Colorado Springs and not from Pueblo, and we kind of began a relationship over the phone uh, before we ever met in person. And um, I was spending a summer living with my parents, and uh, there's these wind chimes that still hang outside of their house, and it was a it was just a steady hot July day, and they were just ringing all day long without any hint of wind. And I was convinced that they were haunted. And I told Desi about these haunted wind chimes. And we both had kind of a chuckle. And, oh, that'd be a great band name, you know? It's I a great band name. And I didn't <laughs> know, you know, I didn't even know Desi was musical or could sing. And, you know, so. And the rest is personal and band history. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Shayla, just briefly, um, you four are now based in Pueblo. Give me a sense of what the, the music scene is like there. Pueblo, it's, it's starting to come, around, like, and be its potential. There's some really great things happening. Um, it what used other, to what be, other bands down there should we know about? Let's, let, who who's playing down there? You know, there's um, it's a, got a really good hip hop scene. It used to have a really good punk and metal band scene. Yeah, it still does. It's always yeah been kind of a breeding ground for a lot of heavier punk rock and metal and sort sort of music. So I think people are coming around to the folk singer songwriter aspect, which absolutely. has been really good. You're feeling that yourselves. All right, I want to end with one more song, Everybody's Talking. It's the opening track off your latest album. In a couple of seconds, tell us what it's about. Um, this is about dealing with the world and maybe how crazy it can be and political, but saying, you know, we could sing away our, our misery. Yesterday's gone, tomorrow's a lie, let's deal with the now. <laughs> Oh, what do you do when they're going around to pick you up when you walk down to the 
Yesterday's gone tomorrow Just lying nothing gonna happen if you never even try You know the time will come you have to your wife Singer and guitarist Inea Lujan and his sister Chela Lujan, who sings and plays the banjo. They are half of the Haunted Wind Chimes, and the Pueblo Band performs tonight at the Larimer Lounge in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. Down the scene.